Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Flitz. Well, as you are getting ready to enjoy some of those ideas for Thanksgiving break that Dave and I gave over our last episode, we bring you a new one now as well. Welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, which is located on Highway 2, just down from the Bemidji Regional Airport. $5 movie nights on Tuesdays. Keep those in mind if you're coming out there to the movies. If you're still holding back a little bit, you can still go and support them by getting concessions there at the Bemidji Theater. It's still a big, big help to the theater, and you can get your concessions and go and that's still a way to be able to support the Bemidji Theater, even if you are not fully ready to go back to the movies. Although, we have an update, and that is that Mr. Dave Brooks himself has returned to the movies. <gasps> it was so much fun and so overdue. Went and saw the new Bond movie. I won't give a review or anything right now, but... Uh, we liked it, but just being back at the movie theater, my wife and I just sitting there looking around and looking at each other. Wow. It's, it's been for, it's been almost two years, been a little over two years for her. It was nice. It was needed. Um, wait till the crowds die down and then go in. But, um, yeah, we'll, we will definitely be back. I can't wait to be going back at the intervals that we normally did, but, oh, it was like reuniting with an old friend. Indeed. I know you're not doing a review, but nope. a really quick, quick reaction what did you think of no time to die well i can't really delve into it without saying and reminding the listeners that there will be spoilers ahead um so if you haven't seen the new bond movie or anything else just be aware i'm going to say things that you might not want to know about so i'm going to say spoilers ahead in three two one is there anybody in even is there uh, yeah, earshot here? Yeah, you even around here their, in the building. They might not be listening to the, the podcast, but they might be down the hall having a coffee. James Bond died. What? 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 I couldn't believe that. So exactly what my ultimate take on that will be will depend on the next one. Is there the theory? Is there the theory that every time you get Sean Connery or Roger Moore, it's actually a different agent whose code name is not only 007 but James Bond is that the case will it finally be revealed don't know but we're going to find out one way or the other when we get to the next one and that'll have a lot to say with it so all of that notwithstanding I liked it very very much I thought it was very good um I look very forward to seeing the next one and who uh who the new Bond will be and this is going to be fun I think hats off to Daniel Craig what a great run I think Boy, he just might very well be the best Bond there's been. Yes, that's why I wanted to make sure that we took some time to appreciate in that way during that episode. And it leaves a. that's why I told you, Dave, it leaves a wealth of possibility on the table and, and many different possibilities that are out there on the table. And I think it seems like those at the top of the Bond universe have a plan in mind. 
Let's hope. Because they were willing to do this and willing to go this route with it. So they seem to have some idea of what that's going to be. I hope it's a good one. And no. I hope I hope it's one that they have fleshed out and considered and thought about and that we will we will get something that makes sense. Well, ultimately. I would have thought that Disney said the same thing when they shelled out $8 million for Lucasfilm and then killed Han Solo with no plan at all. Right. You know, let alone the second trilogy. So it's... I, I hope so. I've got Bond is yet to drop the ball of any major level, so I'm very, very optimistic. We'll see what happens. But when it comes to continuity, this is the first time that they have really, yeah. really leaned into some serious continuity, starting here with these Daniel Craig films. All so. five of them are, you don't think about it as you go until all of a sudden it starts to become apparent as you go. They really are interwoven, and maybe it's not apparent until movie four or five in this five-movie arc. Hey, really? Interesting. That's right. Very yep. interesting. But I liked it. It was good. And it uh, looks like I think the movie's going to lose money. We had talked about it because they moved it 17 times. And every time you did that, it took, you know, it cost money to do that. All the promotion opening this Friday, and then it didn't open Friday. It opened, you know, six months after Friday. That cost money. They may not make their budget back, but all things considered, it's breaking box office records. Uh, it's the highest grossing American film in Finland, I read. So that's something. That's something. Yeah. So it's doing very well getting money. It's going to lose money just because of all this, you know, shenanigans, but it is what it is. Yeah, it looks like it is hitting digital and and already right hard now hard copy right before Christmas. Yeah, I think that's part of the effort. That's a theory. I my theory is that's part of the effort to try to offset some of those losses is get it out there for the holiday season for people to be able to purchase and to be able to help take care of some of those those shortfalls that they have in terms of terms of budget so but anyway the movie did great it's done really well in terms of critical response just a shame that that yeah in the pandemic time that we're in that it it may actually end up losing money oddly enough but it was fantastic it'll be interesting to see some of the other plot elements like daughter how that's gonna work its way forward or yeah yeah, so, anyway. I, we said spoilers. We said spoilers if you we kept did. listening. Huh, what? So, All right, today for our topic, we're discussing the immersive movie experience. And that's, uh, that is a very flowery way of talking about quote-unquote gimmicks that have been in the movies over the years because some of these are not just gimmicks. They they are actually things that have been innovative and have shaped the movie industry sometimes for forever. In some cases, it was an effort to try to do something new and different, and it didn't quite come off. But as we get into a few of these, I think this might make more sense if you're starting to wonder, what exactly does that mean, like the immersive movie experience? Well, we'll give you some, we'll give you some thoughts, and we'll give you some examples, and... It's going to make a lot more sense as we get into it. And it's fitting, Dave, because last night on TCM, uh, Singing in the Rain was airing. I was just thinking and, about that. And today, I was, yeah. yeah, and I was watching that movie and reminded of what a, what a clever and funny and innovative movie that is as far as thinking about Hollywood industry and thinking about the innovations that have been going on there in the previous three decades or so, or three decades prior in Hollywood, what had been going on as far as innovation, because when you think about it, the talkie is maybe the most cut-and-dry example of exactly what we are talking about here with the immersive movie experience 
being innovative with how to present a picture because motion pictures were simply that motion pictures. They were without sound for about the first two decades or so in Hollywood where things started out with being silent films and the simplicity of that. I remember even growing up, I watched a few little rascals, uh, shorts that were done that were silent films. That was my first introduction to silent films was watching some of those little rascals, uh, videos that, that my family had. And that's how movies started out. And I mean, the talkie was one of those first examples of some real movie innovation taking place. You don't realize how quote unquote recent that was. It was about a hundred years ago that movies more or less as we know them, the jazz singer, the very 1927, first one, 27. Yeah. That was the first one. That's almost a hundred years ago. So when you think about it, well, that's not all that long, all things considered. So at some point though, the marketplace becomes saturated. You get too many, all these movies, maybe overproduction. And, it, you know, back in this time and era, movies weren't as, call it elaborate, as they have evolved into becoming. You know, they can't all be like Inception. You know, it's an involved thing. You got to see it a few times. Here's a video of a man and his horse riding in a field. What's the plot? That's kind of the plot, just watching them go. You know, that was considered maybe the first movie ever. Edison had done that spinning, you know, wheel thing. You look through the slits and you see the horse running. And that was considered maybe the first quote unquote motion picture. But at some point, when they're all kind of coming up in the game, how do you set yours apart? You know, I mean, marketing was a thing, but it wasn't like it is now where your commercials coming into your house. There weren't TVs yet. So how are you finding things out? You walked by the theater, you saw a poster. Huh, looks interesting. Let's go. What would set you apart at that marquee compared to the other marquee? So theaters had to get interesting uh, interesting marketing schemes. Filmmakers had to come up with interesting ways, whether it was in uh, immersive, whether it was, uh, we just kind of bust things out. 3D is probably the big one that comes out. Stereoscope was another one, and Cinorama was another one with a slight curve to the screen. So to an extent, your peripheral vision, maybe if you were in the first three rows, you know, but uh, you know, Smell-O-Vision was another weird one that came around, Smell-O-Rama. They came up with all kinds of interesting ways. So we're going to just kind of scratch and sniff the surface. See what I did there? Yes, I did. <laughs> so we were kind of looking up some of the history. We might as well jump in with the big one that you know most people kind of associate with this kind of thing, and we're talking 3D. 3D is an image goes back to like the 1800s, but I mean, movies didn't exist until about the 20, you know, the, maybe the late 19th century, but the early 20th century. Uh, even Thomas Edison had diddled around with, you know, what a 3D image could be. But it didn't really start making its way into things until, funny enough, German cinema in the very early 20th century, because of exactly what we were talking about. There was so much overproduction of films, some had to find interesting ways to at least explore, is this possible? And, you know, there wasn't color on these movies, at least not initially. That came later. But how could they use color to attract people in? And that started to work its way in um, even more so. How about three-dimensional images? And that's kind of where it got its start in a lot of ways. But did it really work, Hoove? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I didn't know about that that it had its roots in German cinema. I mean, you think three-dimensional film, and the first really big instance of that on American movie screens was with House of Wax in the mid-1950s. That was the first time that that really, that that concept really took off. But 
those who made those movies really lean too much into it. I mean, they they would have even even within House of Wax there were there were portions of that movie where they intentionally were breaking the fourth wall and communicating with the audience in some manner or looking at the audience in some manner of, you know, hey, what did you think of that? As far as like popping out of the screen and doing things like that. I think of I think of Spy Kids 3D when I think of that too. They, they they would talk to those who were watching and being like, now put your glasses on. Or they're they're talking to the characters in the movie, but then also winking and kind of looking at, at you as you're watching the movie, going, put your glasses on. Wink. And then and then you put them on. And it's like, okay, this is this is a little bit too gimmicky here, I think, going this route with it. But 3D I think has matured in more ways in recent years where it hasn't some of these films that have gone the three-dimensional route have have realized like I think of Avatar I think Avatar was a good example of a movie that you do it right can be a really good 3D movie experience can be very immersive that way Gravity was the kind of movie that had to be seen in in that regard. Now, would you say that perhaps that those movies lean too much on visuals in some ways and could have done could have done with more in terms of plot or in turn Sure, you could you could make that argument, maybe more so for Gravity that needed a little bit more in that regard, especially since that was a a unique kind of first-person experience, which we'll get to that later. Um but it it showed what could be done if you if you really leaned on making 3D part of the movie experience rather than the uh, like a, a sideshow or leaning too much into talking about hey this is 3D or talking to the audience through this rather than just trying to make it part of the way that the movie is put together. 3D, I think, is a good tool in the box for a filmmaker to use, but it's no different than the cinematography. It's no different than mood lighting or visual effects or audio effects. It's a tool, but it's supposed to be part of the scenery and not become all the scenery as far as it goes. It it needs to be its own thing, where I think sometimes it's the gimmick, you know, about making this thing work. And does 3D... I think I think they're getting much much better at making it work now. But I mean, I'll admit I've never seen the original push, like the '50s and '60s 3D's House of Wax and so forth. Uh, I've not seen any one of those movies, so I can't tell you how well the effect worked. But generally, the consensus was it wasn't really all that effective, and really not that much had changed between then and when 3D kind of made a comeback in the early '80s. And those I have seen in 3D, and so essentially you're talking the red and the blue lenses. It's does it work? It's really technically no advanced more so than it was in the 50s and 60s. And I've seen those and I could say straight up, I don't really think so. Well, something's happening, but it's not popping out like, say, the modern 3D movies are. Something's definitely different. And 50s, 50s 3D films were also not really enjoyed or appreciated all that much because from what I've read, people didn't like having to take the glasses off and put them back on again at certain points of the movie that they were watching, which was kind of the case then. Yeah. You you had to be selective because there were portions of the movie where it was 3D and then you had to put the glasses on. Then you had to take them off and then put them on. Oh, and, and people did not like having to do that. They didn't even like really having to wear the glasses themselves. So that's where 
the innovation then turned towards something like Cinerama. And with three strip Cinerama, that that became the next innovation that sort of that that sort of took place from a visual standpoint, where it became its own immersive experience where you're almost you you're almost surrounded by the picture. It was it was IMAX before IMAX in some ways. The problem was though, you had these three different strips that were being filmed and had to be pieced together and it had to work out perfectly that they were linked together and just as you described earlier Dave you had to be watching at a certain point in the movie theater in the Cinerama movie theater to be able to get the 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 full effect and the full experience otherwise it all looked distorted take how the west was won for example that was one that was shot on three strip Cinerama you watch that movie now I watched it a few months ago I couldn't get into it because the picture, I mean, it's it's an epic sweeping western that that stretches over decades, but the picture is distorted in it because fuzzy, yeah, yeah, and and just there's some that's in focus, there's some that feels super distant, there's some that feels in focus. It it's all so strange when it's pieced together in the way that it is because that's how three strip cinerama was. Now it lended itself to. Other forms of of shooting within the the Cinerama form slash, um, I, I forget what the the other name was here. At least off the top of my head, that that manifested itself from that that was used in movies like Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey or Cartoon. It led to a better form of shooting that then followed. But the three strip idea, the those three pictures put together into one just didn't work then because you you had a distortion problem that happened but it came from trying to do something based off of the 3D movie experience and trying to make it a more sweeping picture that you were watching on screen. Well, 3D also, the way that it was made, there were a couple of different ways. One was, you know, rather than three strips, it was two strips. And we mean that literally, two film strips going and filming simultaneously. Basically, one was for the left eye, one was for the right eye, and then they would be projected at the same time. One with a with a bluish tint, one with a reddish tint, then you had the glasses, and it just kind of created sort of a, a stereo optical effect, if you want to call it that. Um, but when you would have to put it in a way, like on TV, where you didn't have your glasses... Um, obviously if you took your glasses off during the movie, it didn't look quite right. Call it that. Or if you had to make this for TV, like maybe you'll see Jaws three or something and it's on, it was made in 3d and that was done differently with one strip. They kind of split the film strip in half where the upper part of the film cell was one eye. The bottom was the other eye and the way that it was shot and the way that it was projected made it come together in such a way. But the problem is, is when you watch it not in 3D, it does have that fuzzy, almost kind of a washed out look to it. It is not sharp. And that includes how the West was won. And making an out of focus Western is almost, I mean, that's part of the draw is that it's so picturesque and gorgeous in the cinematography, but it doesn't really live up to the hype. And it wasn't until you got around to right around 2010, 2009. Avatar comes out and nailed it. James Cameron knows how to use this. And it's not about the 3D. If the movie isn't in 3D, it doesn't work. And some people say, I don't think it was the best plot. I remember watching that movie with my wife for the first time uh, on video, on disc. And I was watching it. It was one of those girlfriend at the time, all right, fine, he's going to watch this movie. But then she told me, 
I didn't realize it was really going to be good. She really liked it. I really liked it. I thought it was really, really good. It'll be interesting when the sequels come out if people remember when they actually watch Avatar again how good it really is. And I really do think so. We'll see how the sequels do. But uh, I saw your eyebrows going up. Okay. But it was... uh, It wasn't my favorite, but I see see the appeal, too. But it wasn't about things jumping off the screen. It was about moving through the jungle and feeling like the jungle is wrapped in around you on Pandora. And so when the characters are going past a bush with a leaf or something, you see half the audience duck out of the way so that this leaf doesn't brush them in the face. It's not something popping out as a gimmick. It brought you in. And that's what 3D is really supposed to be, bring you in rather than things pop out because that never really seems to you know really work like intended captain eo is one thing at disney world if you remember that ride 3d movie with michael jackson but uh but this was something different and all these other movies would be shot normally but they would convert them in post-production to become 3d but they were never intended to be 3d it's supposed to add a little depth but if you don't plan on that to be the case making it it's not going to work whether you convert it or you don't convert it But yeah, that led into the three-strip Cinerama that then followed. And what I was thinking of was Ultra Panavision and Super Panavision 70. Mm. Uh, Those those two forms that then followed, too. Because, yeah, it's a mad, 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 mad world. It was Ultra Panavision 70. That was the same thing with The Greatest Story Ever Told, Cartoon. 2001 A Space Odyssey then went the Super Panavision 70 route. Ice Station Zebra, same thing. And they presented it in Cinerama then as well. But it was another way to make it a larger canvas, a larger experience, and trying to go an alternative route from 3D and and trying to come up with something that would still be an immersive experience visually, even if you didn't have that with 3D. But 3D is usually one of the biggest ones that comes to mind as far as an immersive experience with movies. Like, like they looked at that as being... That has been looked at as being like the next... The next phase, I suppose, but being able to figure out how to do that and how to do it properly has been more of a challenge. Although, again, just as you described with Avatar, just as we had talked about, a little bit better done in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of wonder, so the 3D boom most recently has kind of fizzled out. When was the last 3D movie that came out? I can't think. It's been at least five plus years. I can't remember what it was. But it seems well, to have, IMAX 3D really took off for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there aren't IMAX theaters in every, there was a more almost regional. Like here in Bemidji, Minnesota, where we do the podcast, where's the nearest IMAX screen? Is that Fargo? I Probably. guess either Fargo or Grand Forks, most definitely the Twin Cities, but yeah. maybe Fargo or Grand Forks would be closer, yeah. So you're going to be in the car at least two hours, and I got to imagine if you're not in a major city... That's probably going to be the case. You're going to be driving for a few hours to go see an IMAX movie while every little town or every other little town has got a movie theater, even if it's a small rinky-dink theater at the very, very least. You can find those. So By the way, Fargo or Grand Forks definitely would be closer. I just can't think of if they have an IMAX or not. Yeah, And you know, I've never seen a movie movie that wasn't like a science movie or something on an IMAX screen. You know, I've been to IMAX movies, but they're not the same, not with a plot. You know, hey, we're going to learn about the Amazonian rainforest. I've seen those on IMAX. Yes. But I never saw The Dark Knight on IMAX or anything else. It would be fun. I would get a kick out of that. It is fun. It is really cool. I saw The Dark Knight Rises. I saw Interstellar. In 70 millimeter mm. on I, on the IMAX screen as well, which was a really really unique experience seeing it in in 70 millimeter picture like that as well. Um, 
loved getting to to have that little bit of an of an experience too. So yeah, I've seen I've seen a few movies in IMAX, and I, I love that Christopher Nolan especially has really taken the IMAX movie experience and really emphasized that that hey we we need to make this a sweeping kind of visual for for people to really experience and take in. You know, and that just to take not to go down the rabbit hole, but I don't think you can talk about this without talking about this other part. Coming up with, say, three-dimensional and Cinerama and curved screens and all of this are ways to pull you in even more. I don't think it's really possible to get pulled in on a screen this big on your device. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for that, absolutely, but it's almost, for some people, becoming the norm. When they've got a three-hour layover in an airport, well, just watch the new Bond movie here in this uncomfortable chair. And And that's how they consume their movies. Mm. So could that be sort of a death knell for this more ultra-immersive, you know, whether we're talking visually or other ways, what we're going to talk about here coming up, um, could that be the death knell for that? If people aren't looking to be immersed, but they're just looking for, you know, not a drink to be savored and enjoyed, but something to be instead, something to be just quickly consumed quickly. You know, take a shot of your coffee and chug it down rather than sip it and savor it and enjoy it. Could this be the ending of an immersive experience like that if audiences are turning away from an immersive environment like a movie theater, which is designed to kind of erase everything around you and pull you in all by itself rather than in the comforts and surroundings of familiarity at home. Instead, now you are kind of going away from that. What do you think could be or would there there be a future? Or might the whole future be that you're not watching it on a screen at all, but maybe now they keep talking about, you know, interactivity like – symbiotic or even uh, something pulling it directly into your brain, maybe. Oh, boy. Well, I'm that, not sure if I want to go that route. That last piece there is is a new one that I haven't heard. That That's a terrifying reality to yeah. think about, but a possible reality. But you are right. You are correct, though, Dave, in saying that we're starting to see that shift and that change that's that's taking place as far as how movies are consumed and there there are some who are really trying to rage against that who are really trying to remind people i mean you and i do that too we we do that through this podcast all the time talking about that we feel there's still a place for the the movie experience as it has been and arguably there should be a place for the movie experience even a question as it has been because there's something unique and special about that that is part of what makes movie going enjoyable like going to the theater in in some respects. But it's being shuttered in favor of convenience. And if convenience is selling, which unfortunately it is, and consumers are going that route, then that's the route that the industry feels like it has to go. I, I think that's, the sadly, the best way to describe how this has all gotten to the point where it is right now. Yeah, I do think there's a trade-off. I think for every more convenient step like streaming. And I I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here. You trade something else out. You know, I see something about a particular movie. I kind of want to see it. I want to watch the original Ghostbusters before I go see the new one. Well, it's not Halloween now, so Ghostbusters 1 and 2 probably isn't playing anymore. But I'd like to see it before I go see it. So is it streaming anywhere? Not at the moment. Well, there's your convenience right there, but the trade-off is accessibility and options. But at my house, I still have a DVD collection. I've got the first two Ghostbusters. I can watch it whenever I choose to. And I'm never going to get rid of those until it truly is all 
accessible, but it isn't. Ghostbusters will show up on a streaming service and then it'll disappear. Yep. I don't understand that. I don't know why, say, Columbia or Sony or whoever has the rights to Ghostbusters doesn't have it up at all times so anybody and everybody can watch it. But anyway, too far down that rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, I think there, there is a trade-off. And I think where you start getting that ultra-immersive, enhanced movie theater experience, I don't see that coming into your homes. 3D television really didn't work out too well. Uh, I know people that went and spent the extra money to get one, and that's it. They had it for like half a minute. Half a minute. Nobody does you know, 3D broadcasting anymore. We're going to watch football in 3D. No, you're not. So yep. now you got all this gear and this TV that really was built for 3D that now you're just kind of stuck with. So there's that also drawback about being on the cutting edge of this kind of technology. When it comes to something I want to bring into my home, I want it to be reliable, consistent, and for as long a lifespan as I can get it. Until holograms come around. Yeah, we'll get there perhaps. Yeah. Maybe in my lifetime. All right, back to some innovations and some ideas, some of them perhaps gimmicks, some not so much. Have you heard of Sense Around? Yes. Yeah. Sense Around. Really, really funny concept to think about. I mean, at the time, innovative. At the time, hey, this this might work. Let's get you into the experience of the movie Earthquake in the 1970s by having falling debris that'll topple onto you. And <laughs> didn't work, though. Theaters dealt with all kinds of, of problems with the mess that was created by having falling, rumbling bricks and a rumbling seat and things like that. But mostly it was the, the falling debris that they tried to have get into the picture. It didn't work very well. It was a very brief experiment that kind of came and went. Yeah, literally stuff coming from, a, like when you go to those New Year's Eve balls and they drop the balloons, now imagine they're pretend styrofoam bricks and other debris and boulders. Somebody's strapping a paint shaker to the underside of your theater seat, so you start to shake like your cell phone was going off, but on steroids. It was interesting, it was it was creative, but the, pl- the practical applications... You had to have seen this coming a mile away. So wait a minute. After every single show, the theater crew, not only are they going to sweep up the popcorn, they're going to separate the debris from the jujubes on the floor. Yeah. They're going to reload it up into the ceiling somehow. And how are they going to do that while the first theater group is leaving and the next audience is coming in? How does that work? And what if the paint shakers break? You know, what if it falls off and down the down the aisle? Could somebody trip on that? How do you wire that up? It, it was an interesting concept, but really not executed well, and I don't think there's any way that anybody could have even expected that to be a consistent, ongoing, well, we'll just adapt it for the next movie. What would fall from the sky for watching a comedy? Would they have rain? Would it rain on the people? Wouldn't you all get wet? Your makeup run, you know, and singing in the rain? How, how far were you going to go? Right. Well, it's just one of, of many examples of trying to get you into the experience of the movie in a way that goes beyond even the 3D of just making it pop out from from just being flat on a screen. Now you're trying to bring in the senses into it. I mean, you mentioned Smellorama, if you want to go back to that one, but trying to get the senses involved here. Boy, you're laughing over there over this. You know, Earthquake came out in the 70s. I wish Sensorama had been around for, say, like Rocky Two. Everybody gets oh, punched. Oh, man. The seat in front of you just has this 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 fist that comes no, out. No, I mean they're gonna let the boxing the, glove. They're gonna let the inmates out. They're gonna run down the aisles in boxing attire and just here you go, man. Here you go, man. Down and down and down. And in Rocky Four, Rocky gets brain damaged, and so will you too. At oh, Rocky no. Four, 
It really could have got out of control. Plus, you bring in the cold of him training in Russia, have that descend upon the entire theater. Oh, man. You know, there's a little-known movie um, by the Zucker Brothers that did Naked Gun and Airplane. It's called The Kentucky Fried Movie. It's not really a movie as much as it is a bunch of little sketches with kind of a, a kung fu parody in the middle. But one of the parody, one this of the sounds little, like the Colonel Sanders Lifetime movie. They they started before they ever made a movie. They had a theater that was called the Kentucky Fried Theater where they did their little sketches and improv on stage. And so they basically did that on the big screen, uh, the Kentucky Fried movie. It's it's an underknown movie, but it's a cult classic. And there's a scene in it. One of the sketches is a guy going into a movie shown in feel around and so you go to the theater you sit down in your seat but there's somebody who sits directly behind you and they are going to blow smoke in your face when the character on screen smokes they're going to rustle up your hair they're going to actually hold a knife to your throat when the jealous girlfriend does so on screen it's just a big funny joke and how involved it gets stay tuned for our next adult film feature and, you know, you get a little nervous as to where it's going to go after that. But it was a fun parody on exactly what we're talking on interesting and bizarre ways to bring you into the cinematic yeah. experience. You know, I don't think we could talk about a lot of this immersive without talking about the audio version of this. You got to talk about surround sound. And in some places, even more than that. I will never forget. I may have in my life gone to a movie theater that had surround sound prior to this, but I don't recollect the effect as much as I did in Jurassic Park. And I remember there was a whole lot being made about the DTS, which was a brand new sound system then that was much about the surround sound and everything else. But when that Tyrannosaur is walking somewhere in the woods, you don't see it. You just know it's there. It was only playing out of like the back left channel. So the whole theater turns to look as if there was going to be something behind them. Yep. Because that's where the sound was coming from. You had two channels front and back, or front and uh, right and left on the front side, right and left on the back side. You had the dialogue from a screen, from a, a, a speaker behind the screen, and then somewhere there was the sixth speaker that was the subwoofer. So you'd really get when that tyrannosaur was shaking the water. Oh yeah, you felt it in your own guts as the water was rippling, and the way that they made the sound travel from left to right. I don't know if I'd ever had that effect prior to Jurassic Park. I'd have to research it, but I don't know if surround sound was a thing really before that. Sound quality is a deeply underrated Huge. way where movie theaters remain in somewhat of a pole position. Now, if you at home have a surround sound setup, I do not. I do. You do then you've got a leg up as far as being able to go, okay, I'm getting myself on par with the movie experience, which a lot I, I know a lot of people do have. But movie theaters have done a quality job, and movies themselves, with their sound mixing, have done a quality job of being able to bring in that kind of surround sound experience and being able to layer their sound appropriately to make it a really unique experience to be in the theater to hear those things because whether it's in that movie dave or many others you know if you like hear the pop pop of a gun in the distance it's not like if you're just watching it on a conventional tv where that sound is just kind of it, it's there like sometimes in a theater you'll hear it and it it feels like it's behind you and you kind of turn around a little bit or, or turn in your chair 
And it, it's clever use of, of sound and of surround sound to be able to make going to see it in the theater a little bit more unique because the sound is is not just it's not just flat. I, I think movies have done a terrific job of using sound to their advantage, going beyond just, you know, the talkie and now innovating to how do we use sound to make this uh, immersive when you're there in the theater. I, I agree. I remember back in the 90s and even in the early thousands, you'd go to some of those tech stores like Best Buy or Circuit City when there still was a Circuit City blast from the past. And they'd have a little area set up where you'd get to experience surround sound for what you could bring into your home theater. You'd sit in a chair or stand in the middle of this area and they might have not a picture at all, but it would just be an audio thing of like a, cha- uh, of a locomotive or something traveling in a circle around you. And the only thing that's making this happen is a sound effect. And based on how they raise or lower the levels on a particular channel, front, right, rear, right, so forth, the train is traveling around you and you can hear it. And even more than that, you can feel it. Now imagine if you are watching a screen projection of something to help enunciate that fact. Here comes the 310 before the bad guys rob the stagecoach and you could hear the train approaching from the left as it pulls into the left side of the screen. You hear it coming before it comes and it feels like it would as if you were out there. You might be looking for the animal out in the woods. There's, a, there's something snapped, some twigs broke in the distance behind you and you actually hear them. That's what Jurassic Park did so well. And audio being such a big, hard part of it, some people have asked, well, what's the big deal with with George Lucas and his THX? THX wasn't necessarily a great sound innovation in a way that it was presented. It was just that it, you know, really what it was, was that you had A, good sound in that theater, and B, you didn't have the bleed over from the sound next door. You know, there have been times where you'll be in a movie theater and there'll be an argument on screen in the theater next to you. And you could hear part of that argument bleeding over into the quiet shot where your guy is quietly walking through the woods looking for the downed wreckage of the plane or whatever. So you're getting a little bit of a, of a washover. THX was to try to separate the theaters and get a good quality of sound in each theater rather than some giant new innovation like uh, surround sound. But boy, when you get it and you get it right, and not every movie really capitalizes on this, but things like Twister did. You could hear the storm coming from the distance and the rumble behind you. If you really do it and you think about the artwork, not just on the screen, but also around you in the audio department, I am a fan and I almost, I'd be in favor of them turning the volume up. Some of those theaters are a little quiet. I get it. Not everybody wants that. Bring earplugs. I want it. I want it. I want to wash in it. I want my shirt to vibrate like the guy in the Sony commercial when the music's blasting his hair back, (laughs) the dog's ears are flat. That's me in the movie theater. That's what I want. Now, sound has worked great. What about motion? Oh, yeah. Dave, have you heard of D-Box? I have. Yes. So, Dave, what is D-Box? D-Box is... It sounds like something you do after you've been too drinking too heavily. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, D-Box technology is this, this idea of motion and haptic systems and linking them into movies so that your seat will move with what is happening in the course of the movie. I know... Uh, Fast and Furious back in 2009, I think, was one really especially notable instance of this where your seat is going to move with the experience of the movie as it's playing out. So I don't know of too many other movies that have done this. That that was the one that I saw when I was doing some research for this. Are you familiar with some others? You know, I've read about D-Box, but to me, it's a motion ride. 
You know, it's like something that you'd see at Mall of America. You'd go into the, you know, the whatever. They don't have it anymore, but it used to be like a... a, Video gaming especially has done this, or flight simulation has done this too. Where you really are experiencing it in your seat as you are going through doing it. But you need a special seat. So what what exactly are we talking about as far as far-ranging implications? Every theater in America having maybe at least one theater where all the seats are ripped out and they're all replaced by these motion simulator things... To me, it seems way overkill, and it only would work for certain movies. For the next Meryl Streep drama, how how are you going to implement moving seats when she's having the dry heave crying and she's <laughs> kind of convulsing like that? Are your seats going to convulse for you? I mean, I don't understand the app, the, the applications of that where even three-dimensional could almost work on any movie. It's trying to pull you into it. Imagine putting D-Box on Mad Max Fury Road or moly. something like that. That would be something good. But for be me, crazy. how could you really make that work? Unless right. you're going to have the front row seats and only the front row seats being, or an extra row added in the front with these motion seats. I don't see how it works at all. That's why there are only certain theaters that have D-Box theaters in them or D-Box seats that are a part and of And only temporarily. You know, you'd almost have to, well, the new Mad Max is coming out. We're going to remove rows one through seven and replace them with D-Box rows. That's the only way I could see making it work. And even then, could you imagine the manpower going in over, what, a thousand theaters across the country? All the seats would have to build. You ever you ever realize how the little dinky things in your car break down? You don't think one of these seats are going to break down? It, to me, it seems like if you can't make it work, it sounds like a great idea if you can make it work. And if not, and it's not practical... Great attempt, guys, but it's like the first versions of 3D. It didn't really work that great. Perfect it. Make it work. Make it reliable. Then we'll talk. It's more of a gimmick. It's more yeah. of a Universal Theater, Universal Pictures Studios ride. You know, I I, I went on a, well, do you want me to tell you the story about the 4D? I, I told you about this off the air. Oh, yeah. Yep. It sounds kind of like that. Uh, back in years ago, Las Vegas had a Star Trek attraction, and you could go and ride these rides. And one of them was four, uh, three, it was 4D. Not only was it a 3D movie, but your seat was kind of like we're talking about D-Box. It would move a little bit. Not so much that you needed a harness or a seatbelt, but it would move a little bit. And even more so, there were misters that would, you know, if something blew up and flew at your face, they actually had like a mister that would spray you with Windex or whatever. Yeah. You know, so you felt something get you in the face. Oh, uh. And not only that, there's a point where you get quote-unquote assimilated and all these nanoprobes are in your body and they're doing these things. And then things in your seat would actually rise up and poke you in the back and in the butt. But I wasn't sitting straight. I was sitting kind of, you know, a little lopsided. You were doing it wrong. I was doing it wrong. I was just kind of, I don't know, for whatever reason, you sit different in a chair. And the little thing that was supposed to get me in the left butt cheek got me right in the middle. Went right down the Death Star Trench and I shot out of the chair. And of course, I went all the way to Vegas for a bachelor party, and all I got was an anal probe. So it was, it, oh. you know, if you're going to go that extent in a movie theater, you got to find ways to make it work. Again, I don't see the new Meryl Streep movie utilizing the D box technology at all. Not unless she does River Wild again, in which case they're going to have to reload the Windex bottles after every showing, because that was a good movie. That would be great to feel your chair rock. Amongst all the white water rafting photography, the water spraying you in the face. That might be fun. That was a great time for our boss to be walking through as you were talking about that. He was he was quite shocked. <laughs> did I hear the word anal probe? Yes, you did. Oh, boy. Anyway, um, on screen, I, I think it's worth mentioning, Dave, here in the last few minutes. On screen, there have been ideas of making 
the movie experience a little bit more immersive and and unique and innovative as well. Um, one one that comes to mind is first person storytelling. None of have maybe done it quite to the extent that Lady in the Lake did, where it was pretty. It, I think the entire movie was done from a first person standpoint, where they they shot it in that regard, and they went they went to those kinds of lengths. Um, so that was that. That's one example of you know, and we've seen that in other in other movies before, where first person storytelling gets used for part of it, but that that used it for pretty much all of it. Um, one that I've that I've seen in a few different forms that I always am really interested in is continuous shot. I mean, we saw that I was with just thinking of that. We saw that with nineteen seventeen. With nineteen seventeen, continuous shot was was something that they did there. They pieced together the different shots to make it continuous in that film. Rope was the first one that really went those lengths with Alfred Hitchcock um, taking a play concept essentially and and putting it onto the big screen and really paving the way for things that that were done later as far as continuous shot. But that one, that one in particular is one of the more notable ones, and it's also one of the more Oh, I see what's going on here. Kind of moments when you realize there's a continuous shot playing out. And it's like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's, you know, movies like Rope, you know, if you think about a, a show on a stage, like a Broadway show or a, or a musical or whatever, those are really continuously shot and everybody knows they're blocking and they know their lines and they just go out there and they do the whole show. Maybe there's an intermission, maybe there's not. Rope was shot almost as if it was on stage you know they just happened to put cameras there and film it but it was almost like the whole thing went through like a play but with cameras 1917 they didn't actually film the whole movie in one long shot but they had great trickery and if you really know what you're looking at you can see where one thing seamlessly goes into the next thing and how they were able to do it and to my recollection i've seen the movie a few times i think there's only three obvious points where the movie stops and there's a jump forward in time or whatever. You could see where those come in out, and that's it. There's only three of them, and everything else is blended together to make it have that effect. And it was fabulous, and but it does absolutely pull you in. It was interesting to see how things like that went. That's right. Yeah, continuous shot always fascinates me when there's a, even a portion of one in a movie, and and the lengths to which directors will try to make that a part of the movie and make it happen and and what they'll try to do within it like if there's an action sequence going on or something like that or how the camera moves it's pretty spectacular i've seen it even on the small screen too in television oh, oh yeah you know when you get a filmmaker that really is into making something really good you either a appreciate what you're seeing because you know you're seeing something above and beyond or even secondary to that you're seeing something that you don't think you've seen before especially the more you watch the more you realize the way things work and then you see something that breaks the norm for example where you wouldn't expect it the first halloween movie the first what five minutes is a continuous shot and there were technical limitations when you're making a low budget horror movie like that which that was there's only so much film that can go into the camera which means you only have so much time before you run out of film how are you able to string together from a point of view of young little Michael Myers stalking his sister, going into the house, committing the murder, coming back out, and all of it is presented as a continuous steady cam shot, none of which you'd ever seen before in a movie, especially to a length like that and with a moving camera like that. Steady cam was brand new at the time. 
even at the time you're watching this, and I think that's part of the opening effect of how you know over the top that is and how much it grabs you, not just because you realize that the point of view is a little kid who had just done this horrible thing, but the fact that I'd never seen a movie open like this before. And every time the camera moves, you could tell it's somebody trying to hold the camera steady, but it's shaking and it's moving, but not in this instance. And the fact that it was such a long, continuous shot, and if you really know where you're looking, you could see where the cuts were made, but it was not in an obvious way. And when you do something like that, it brings you in more because one of the joys of seeing a movie is how the heck did they do that? Even when you know the tricks of the trade, you still see something that I feel like Penn and Teller fool us and the magicians can sometimes pull one over on them. How did they do that? I love that magic of movies that sometimes seems to be lost these days. That's right. There are even examples like live action and animation being put together. I mean, that dates back to even like the 50s and 60s. There were examples of that. There were brief moments in movies that were like that. Mary Poppins, they've they've got that in there. It really took off in a new way with Tron. Tron oh, yeah. put that onto a whole different kind of plane. And so too did Who Framed Roger Rabbit with not just animated characters, three-dimensional animated characters, or at least three-dimensional looking animated characters on your screen not just not just flat animation more depth and layer depth to the animation that you're seeing on there but that's been another one that's been innovative is putting the live and the animated together the live action and the animated and not just from a cartoon standpoint look at say star wars episode one jar jar binks was actually a guy on camera so the body is pretty much a suit that he was wearing but the head and everything up was animated so you're and and not even just that you've got characters that weren't there at all that are completely animated like Yoda at least and not when they first made Phantom Menace but when they did Attack of the Clones Yoda is 100% animated no longer a puppet and I know that in the years since they've gone back and they've kind of redone things so now if you watch uh, episode one on Disney Plus they've replaced the Yoda puppet with an animated blah 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 but making things look like they fit. And making things look like they're supposed to work, to pull you in and, and kind of make it work, is interesting. How could you make a guy that even looks like that? Where does that go? How does Harvey Two-Face, I can see a hole through his cheek. How did that work? Where did Gary Sinise's legs go as, as Lieutenant Dan? Yeah, I know he's got legs in real life, doesn't he? Did he remove prosthetic legs? Is he a war veteran? Do I? You just don't know how they make that stuff work, but it brings you in. How did they do that? And so really good convincing effects almost in their own way, whether it's live action and animation, how do you do that? And it pulls you in. Yeah, computer-generated imaging has its roots in what the blend of live action and animated was able to do. Yeah, it, it really does stem from that and, and began there in a lot of ways. Um, how about this one, Dave? I mean, you, you're very familiar with this because you've seen the movie. Alternate Endings. Or having multiple endings, which was what Clue did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's uh, becoming a norm in a lot of ways. Oh, really? Yeah. The, you know, oh, was I was just thinking about, there was one where, oh, it was, um, oh, see, now, I'm, now I want to think about it and I can't remember what it was, but it was a lot of times they will come up with different endings because they can't come up with a version that makes it work. For example, they just won't was, put them all on screen like Clue did and have... If you go to the theater, you'll get a different ending here as compared oh, as a gimmick. to here. Yes, yeah. yes. That, that's that's kind of unique. You don't generally work into that. And I don't think you'll see it again because it generally didn't work. 
Um, but I, I don't know why it didn't work because it was good. You went from one, depending, there were three endings to the movie. Depending on which theater you went to, you got a different ending of the movie. And they did actually put a, something, a card up that lets you know we're going to see ending A or B or C. So if you wanted to see all three endings, you'd have to, if you saw ending A, You'd have to go find a theater that had ending B or C, and it didn't matter. But if you watch it on disc or sometimes when it's streaming, they'll just have one ending and that's it. You just get selected an ending. When you watch it on disc, you can have a random ending or you can watch all three endings. So it was kind of the way it worked. It was kind of a gimmick. And depending on which version you went to, depended on who done it. There was one where only one person was guilty. There's a version where everybody's guilty. There was a fourth version they were going to make but didn't film. Or maybe they did, but it never got released. Um, and that's, that's one thing, but I don't think you'll see that again because Clue didn't do well at the box office, even though it's a great movie. And it's become a cult classic. Oh, it's well worth yeah. seeing. Don't let anybody tell you, well, it didn't do well at the box office. doesn't matter. It just means they marketed it poorly, and it's a great movie, and it really, really is. And they're right. talking about remaking it with Ryan Reynolds. It would be interesting if they redo the multiple endings idea. But you know, different endings is kind of a norm. And when you get the DVD, if you still have DVDs, you can watch the alternate endings, and this is one way we could have ended it. We edited it a little different, make it this way, or as a whole different plot point that either is or is not present at the ending, depending on which version you watch. I love things like that. Movies have been doing this since pretty much they, they first came around, trying to innovate in that way. I think some of the question then, Dave, is where does it go from here to continue keeping people coming back to the movie theater experience. What is that going to look like in the future? As streaming, like, like we talked about it, and has kind of percolated under the surface here, streaming is is changing how you consume movies and how you how you watch them. So what are movies going to do, especially on the big screen, to continue keeping people coming back for that experience? I think... In some ways, it's a conditioning of us as a people. I mean, not to get too deep, but I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, who doesn't go to Best Buy and they want to go, or whatever video store, and you want to get the biggest screen TV there is? Why? You want to be immersive. It's a lot more involved if you're feeling more pulled in, and almost the bigger the screen, the better it is. I want to be able to see the laces on the football from the long shot where I can see all guys lining up on the field. I want that kind of clarity. I want that kind of immersiveness. Well, what bigger than a giant movie screen? And even more so an IMAX screen. It really pulls you in. Rather than watching on a teeny little device, and I get it, there's a place for that. But to watch that and that's the only way it is, I I don't want that. I like the idea of streaming, but I think it's not perfected. It's very convenient but even still, as I'm watching something on streaming, and I'll watch streaming stuff, depending on what your, your call it a flow rate of data transfer, that as you're watching it, maybe something kind of jumbles up, and there's a, a little kind of like a hiccup like, like that in the streaming or in the audio. Oh, yeah. I don't want that, but I don't get it when I'm on disc, or you generally don't get it when you're watching it on TV. Sometimes you might if there's something going on, but in general, you don't. When you have things like that that interfere because it's a Mickey Mouse cutout, it doesn't really necessarily work as well as otherwise. I want to feel immersive. When Dances with Wolves came out, everyone is saying, hey, this, this not only is going to win Best Picture, it's gorgeous. The expansive landscape. It's you don't big. Go, you don't go out to the yeah. Great Plains 
on a teeny little screen. You want it on a big, giant screen. If they were doing IMAX movies in 1990 or 89, when that movie came out, that's the way you should have seen it. And to watch it on as big a screen as you have in your house now, that's fine. But to watch something like that on a giant, giant screen sitting up close... You can't beat it. That's why I pined to see my favorite movie, Lawrence of Arabia, on the big screen for so long. Because I knew that that had to be watched on a big canvas, on a big screen. You see, it's the artistic side of a movie that you can't still fully take away. You you can try to enhance it in, in different ways, and some have worked and some have not, as we've gone through during the, the course of this, this episode talking about. You can do your best to try to enhance that, but bottom line still is this is a visual and sound medium. One came a little bit after the other in terms of, of coming into the picture, as we talked about, but you put those two together and you put them together on a very big canvas with sweeping sound to it, and you still can't beat being there in person to experience it. That's why we, we talk about the movie experience as fondly as we do. Yeah, I think watching a show at home is one thing. Watching it on the big screen is one step closer into that immersive experience. Uh, adding 3D or feel around or whatever is just one more step. Whether it works or doesn't work is another thing. Although I do, I think 3D is getting perfected minus the glasses. But other, other than putting some implants in your skull, nope. I don't think it's going to work any other way better than it does right now. And I don't know if I want to go that route, but right. uh, I've seen enough Star Trek to know I don't want to be a Borg. No. Pacemaker might be one thing. That's it. Plus, you experienced that in your own way with, yeah. with your trip yes. that you took. Is there anyone behind me? When I got an uh, anal probe, yeah, in oh, Vegas. My gosh. <laughs> Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Yeah, you probably did not expect that coming into today's episode, that you would get Dave <laughs> telling that story, but here we are. So It's by Area 50, 51, so... Well, I guess it kind of makes sense then if it's by Area 51. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for joining us for this immersive podcast experience. I I don't know how you can, well, I guess I don't know how you can have an immersive podcast experience beyond just listening to us, but maybe we should do live podcast viewings sometime. Could be interesting. Don't we do that when we just go to the movie theater, we sit together, and we just start talking openly and loudly about, see that guy, that's cardboard right there. That's not a real man. Shh, shh. Yes, yeah, see that. Our doesn't live work. podcast didn't go so well. That doesn't work so well. We got no. shushed. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.